Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, we know the Delta variant is driving new infections and hospitalizations throughout Georgia. Now, in just a moment, WABE health reporter Sam Whitehead joins me. There's a lot to talk about regarding COVID-19 right here in Georgia. Also later in the program, how a unique equity fund is designed to create pathways for black and brown students seeking startup funding. And then later, newly named City Schools of Decatur Superintendent Dr. Maggie Furman talks about COVID safety in her district. All those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, we begin with this, and that's national health health experts are continuing to warn who's most at risk for the highly transmissible Delta variant. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky in a press briefing yesterday stressed the importance once again, once again, of those unvaccinated to get the shot. But then she also added another group. For pregnant people who are at higher risk of severe illness from COVID-19, we are strengthening our guidance and recommending that all pregnant people or people thinking about becoming pregnant get vaccinated. We now have new data that reaffirm the safety of our vaccines for people who are pregnant, including those early in pregnancy and around the time of conception. These data build on previous evidence from three safety monitoring systems that did not find any safety concerns for pregnant people who were vaccinated late in pregnancy or for their babies. Now these new data found no increase in the risk for miscarriage among people who received an mRNA COVID-19 vaccine before 20 weeks of pregnancy. That is CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky in Thursday's press briefing here in Georgia. As mentioned, new infections and hospitalizations continue to increase. Joining me now with more on all of this is WABE Health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? As always, Sam Whitehead, thanks for taking the time. Hey, Rose, good to be with you. Let's begin, Sam, with what we are hearing now is that Governor Brian Kemp, he's facing a lot of, a lot of pressure for, I guess, a more aggressive approach in this new surge. I, I want to play a clip. Here's Governor Kemp a day ago on Fox News. Well, I had a really, you know, I've been traveling the state a lot. Obviously, we're seeing uh, very high case counts in our rural communities where vaccination rates are low. Um, I've talked to a lot of hospital CEOs and administrators over the last week or so. Uh, we've been doing that constantly throughout the pandemic on a Metro hospital CEO call yesterday. Every one of those systems, uh, 90 plus percent of the COVID patients in the hospital have not been vaccinated. So my message to folks is, you know, do your due diligence, make a good health care decision for yourself. Uh, but I don't believe mandating vaccines or masks or anything else is going to work at this point. We haven't done that so far. Sam, with all the pressure that 
Kemp is receiving, not only just from Democrats, but public health officials. Has Governor Kemp or anyone from the State Department of Public Health, have they responded? Other than, you know, he went on Fox, but what about here in Georgia? Sure. I mean, that's a great question. Um, You know, the governor for a long time didn't seem so keen to talk about the pandemic. And I think the Delta variant has uh, kind of forced his hand a little bit more. Um, You know, if we can say anything about Governor Kemp's response to uh, the pandemic, it's that it's been pretty consistent. Right. Uh, He faced a lot of pressure during the summer surge last year to say put a mask mandate in place. That was before we had vaccines. And he chose not to do that. Uh, What he did do last year was, I think, a little bit more public campaigning for people to wear masks. Uh, Listeners might remember he did a fly around tour Mm -hmm. with Dr. Kathleen Toomey, who's the head of the Department of Public Health uh, in advance of the 4th of July holiday to really kind of get out in front, get in front of TV cameras, in front of radio microphones to push that message. Um, But, you know, despite the fact that he gets asked the question a lot, are you going to put a mask mandate in place or a vaccine mandate in place? I'm not expecting his answer to change because it kind of hasn't been his approach this whole time. Well, Sam, let's get our listeners up to speed. Where do things stand now with COVID-19 in the state? We know that the cases are still rising. Much of this is because of the Delta variant. Yeah, and we're actually seeing uh, the rolling average of new cases is higher than it was during last summer's peak which is pretty notable, right? Imagine how scary last summer was. Uh, that was before we had a vaccine, Rose. Let's mm-hmm. let's remember that. And now we're seeing more infections in the state with, with a vaccine available. available than we did uh, this time last year. And this is something that we've seen across the Southeast, um, you know, that this is the Delta variant that's really fueling these infections. The CDC does kind of genetic analysis of which virus is infecting people. They say now 85% plus of all infections across the Southeast are because of the Delta variant. And this variant is no joke, right? It's at least two times as transmissible as the kind of wild type alpha variant that we all, you know, came to know last year. And the really scary thing, or the really kind of concerning thing to a lot of folks is it produces a lot more virus in your nose and throat. Mm -hmm. Um, That is why public health officials think it is so much more transmissible than previous variants. Sam, what has this meant for hospitals all this week? We've been hearing this alarm uh, being sounded where we've been seeing some reporting this week about the strain that they're seeing across the state. What is the plight right now of the hospitals? Yeah, I mean, just in the same way that we've seen caseloads higher than last summer's peak, we're seeing hospitalizations higher than last summer's peak. And, you know, I think it's kind of a all-hands-on-deck situation uh, here in Atlanta. Grady Health System, um, their CEO, John Hopper, uh, puts out a regular community update. He, mm-hmm. earlier this week, said that across the health system, in the course of a month, they went from a total of 12 patients to a total of 100 COVID patients in just a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said in this community update that that, in conjunction with a rise in trauma patients and folks just needing regular care, uh, that that threatens the ability of other people in Metro Atlanta to potentially find a hospital bed. So say you have a heart attack, you're in a car accident, mm-hmm. and you need to go to a hospital. If a hospital is full of COVID patients, then that, you know, is not so good for you. Um, you know, we, we've seen some reporting this week that hospitals have gone on diversion status, meaning if an ambulance shows up with a trauma patient, they might not be able to take them. And we are seeing this across the state, right? ICUs are uh, getting fuller and fuller. And You know, the thing that I really think about 
in the context of this rise is just how tired all these healthcare workers might be at this point. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. We are getting close to coming up on two years of living with the coronavirus. And this is, you know, all that time healthcare workers have been really worked to the bone. And then to see this kind of surge in uh, patients right now, I, I can't even imagine what they're going through. And Sam, it almost seems like I want to call it a silly question, but, you know, I want to ask, well, where do things stand with vaccinations? But I think we know the answer to that. Is Georgia still lagging behind other states? We know they're behind the national average. And then also, what are the implications of that still? You know, I think those are two really great questions. I will kind of couch uh, the discussion about where we are by just talking about the fact that Delta is exploding all over the country right mm-hmm. now, right? You know, the, the, the CDC says that uh, upwards of 90%, I think was what Dr. Walensky said, of the country is seeing high rates of transmission. This is in states that have high vaccination rates and states that have low vaccination rates, right? So, you know, you, you are still, even if you get a lot of folks vaccinated, Delta is kind of a different, a different beast. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Across the Southeast, we've seen lower vaccination rates, and this is really become, and I think, you know, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, head of the CDC, has said this a lot, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. Kemp said it there in that in that bit of tape as well. He's hearing from hospital administrators. The people who are getting severely ill are people who are unvaccinated. And so, you know, even though if you look at kind of the way the numbers work, if you have a lot of people vaccinated, you're going to still see breakthrough infections. These Mm -hmm. vaccines are not 100% effective. No vaccine is. That's still going to contribute to a caseload in a county, right? Mm -hmm. So a county might still be red because of those breakthrough infections on CDC's map. But you really have to consider those people are getting much less sick Mm -hmm. if they are vaccinated. And so even though we're seeing lots of spread in areas with high vaccination, the outcomes um, for those people who are getting infected are very different. And all this is happening, Sam, as many public school districts right here in the Atlanta area are already back in session. Um, we've been talking to area superintendents, going to talk to one a little bit later in the program about masks. They all have a different approach. They do. And this, you know, it's a real mishmash. I, you know, uh, it's it's kind of hard to say that there is one policy across the metro region because there's really not. You know, we're seeing some districts require masks. Uh, some districts have made them optional. And it seems um, that regardless of what a district is doing, uh, mask requirements or not, someone is inevitably unhappy about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think it's important to remember in the context of schools that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention does recommend that students, staff, teachers wear masks indoors. And there's a lot of data that the CDC has compiled over the last year about how effective masks can be along with other strategies for preventing infections in schools. And so, you know, it is really interesting to me to see the way that districts are trying to navigate this because, you know, you really have to consider we don't have a vaccine that's been authorized for children Mm -hmm. under 12 years old. Sure. And these are children who can, you know, spread it amongst themselves, take it home, spread it to family members. And it, it does seem like putting a mask requirement in place would be a relatively harmless way to uh, to help slow transmission. Well, I know there's a headline uh, from our friends over at the AJC, Gwinnett Schools top 600 new COVID cases in first week of classes. And I do believe masks are required in Gwinnett Schools. So, you know, there and there probably lies a, a lot of information being said. You know, Sam, are you hearing from health officials in terms of maybe school districts need to rethink maybe a virtual optional what what are you hearing are you hearing anything i I mean uh, the way that i think about it rose is there there is this broad agreement from people of you know every persuasion that kids need to be in school Mm -hmm. 
And it seems like we can all agree that that is what needs to happen. That's that's the best for students. It's the best for learning. Um, it's best, you know, considering all the wraparound services they get at schools Absolutely. too. Absolutely. And I think that the thing that I wonder is what 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 price are we willing to pay for that good? Right. I think we can all agree that that's a that's a good thing. And so, you know, I I think what likely is going to happen over the course of the year is. Uh, you know, there's going to be some stumbles at the start of it, like there were last year, right? We all remember the kind of national attention that mm-hmm. some Georgia high schools got uh, yeah. when some photos of packed high school classrooms went went viral. Yeah. Um, but, you know, things did eventually kind of even out over the course of the year, and a lot of schools were able to find, settle into some kind of regular flow. Most of that was virtual. Yeah. Um, and so I'm kind of curious to see what happens this year. I can imagine for a lot of districts, we're going to see what we're seeing. There are some times of quarantine and some times of in-person. Well, let's move from K through 12 to the big, the bigger kids at colleges <laughs> and universities, which go back later in the month. Look, I'm a big college football fan. I would love to be out there cheering from cheering on everyone from Morehouse to Georgia Tech, all that. But, you know, what are we hearing about, you know, as these colleges and universities come back? I mean, there's there um, at this point, the University System of Georgia, which oversees all the state schools, has not put a mask or vaccine mandate in place. And mm-hmm. that has got a lot of people who attend those schools who work at those institutions uh, not super happy about that. Uh, There's been a petition circulating kind of calling on the university system to do that. Uh, It's a little bit of a different case with private universities. You know, we have seen some require Mm -hmm. vaccines and are going to require masks. You know, it's it's I uh, think about my experience as a college student. I had to get a a meningitis vaccine Mm -hmm. before I went to school. Right. And uh, but that was a vaccine that was fully approved. And I'm curious to see uh, what happens with mandates, especially at the college level, once we move these COVID-19 vaccines from this space of emergency authorization to full approval. And reporting says that that's something the FDA could do as early as mm-hmm. next month. And Sam, you heard Dr. Walensky in the clip that we played, you know, talk about another population that we hadn't really heard the CDC give a guidance on out of its course vaccines for pregnant people. Was that any surprise to you that the CDC came out with that guidance just as yesterday. No, it wasn't really. They had already kind of been leaning in that direction. Um, and so what, what what can happen is, you know, a very specific language change on the okay. CDC's website can really be kind of monumental. And I think that's what happened this week is now the CDC is strongly recommending that pregnant people uh, get vaccinated. Uh, Dr. Walensky said it was more urgent than ever mm-hmm. uh, that they do so. And, you know, as we're seeing cases explode across the country because of Delta, we're seeing more and more pregnant people just as, you you know, as a rule, getting sick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we have known that COVID-19, uh, if you are pregnant, does present additional risks to you and your child. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what the CDC got this week was essentially just kind of co- confirming data, data saying, hey, we kind of thought these vaccines were very safe for pregnant people. Now we know that for a fact. And so, you know, if you're pregnant or you're thinking about becoming pregnant, the CDC says now it is safe for you to get a vaccine and you should do so. And Sam, where are we on boosters? I know the you have been reporting on this. There's some news that's coming up. Yeah, I've actually got my eyes on a, a meeting happening right now. The uh, advisory panel to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is uh, currently discussing whether or not to recommend booster doses of mRNA vaccine. This would be Pfizer or Moderna mm-hmm. uh, for folks who are uh, it's kind of severely immunocompromised. So say Im- immunocompromised rather. Mm-hmm. So say you're you know undergoing chemotherapy or you maybe have had an organ transplant and have mm-hmm. a compromised immune system. There is data that shows that some of these folks, and it's, it's a very small percentage, it's, uh, you know, 
fewer than 3% of the total U.S. adult population, according okay. to the CDC. These are folks who their immune systems, just because you know they've had these other uh, health conditions, just didn't respond properly, um, mm -hmm. or as expected, rather, to a two-shot regimen. They didn't produce the kind of immune protection that you would expect. And so uh, that's what there's, you know, conversation is ongoing right now. Um, FDA earlier today, the mm -hmm. U.S. Food and Drug Administration, um, they have given their thumbs up to a third booster shot for immunocompromised people. It really falls on the CDC to follow up that uh, recommendation from FDA, and, and they could do that um, as you know as soon as the next hour. We're currently in the public comment period, <laughs> which I'm sure is very interesting. Yes, public comment periods for these ACIP meetings are always very lively. And Sam, we want to get you back so you can continue to cover that. But I know I ask this every time you've been on this program: Where does it look like we go from here? You know, I, I have been thinking about this a lot over the last few weeks because you know this has been. I think in some ways a more challenging summer than last year's was because mm -hmm. I think we, we kind of knew at the start of summer last year that it was going to be different and hard and unusual. I think a lot of folks went into the summer thinking that we had maybe turned a corner. Yeah. Uh, and this is this, you know, is every, you know, nor normal folks I talk to people who work in the medical field, public health officials, there was a lot of optimism, a lot of optimism going to the summer that vaccines would potentially bring us out of the pandemic. And I think, you know, we have all had that one point in time over the summer where we've realized that that's not going to be the case. Mm. And so I think this curveball that we've seen with Delta has really shaken a lot of folks um, in a lot of different ways. You know, the way I think about our path forward, Rose, is that we still have a lot of agency here. Mm -hmm. We can still wear masks to keep ourselves safe, to reduce spread in our community. We can still go get vaccinated. And so, you know, in these times when it feels like we don't have a lot of control, um, I think it's helpful to focus on the things that we do have control over, and that's our personal actions. I got to tell you, Sam, my sister says I only listen to two people, Dr. Fauci and Sam Whitehead. And I said, OK, <laughs> WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead, really appreciate it as always. Thank you, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Earlier this year, you may, may remember, I had a conversation with tech entrepreneur and investor Paul Judge. He talked about challenges of securing venture capital for people of color and his mission to close the gap. It's hard for minorities to go raise a, a friends and family round. Mm -hmm. right? You need that first 100K, first 200K. Like, which uncle or aunt do you go to? And so... 
uh, if you think about the gaps that exist, that I found that that friends and family round, that first 100K or 200K is really hard in our community, is really hard for other diverse uh, entrepreneurs that have an idea, that have a dream, that need to go take the chance. And we said, how can we help? How can we help fill that void? And so I've been doing that for five years. We we did it, we used to call it startup battle. I don't know if you ever had a chance to, to come to one. We've done eight of those. And now through Panoramic, we're going to do them every month. So think about every month you get to give some entrepreneur the chance to go chase their dream for the first time uh, by putting $100,000 behind their idea. And the companies that have come through it before have now become multi-million dollar companies and raised millions of dollars of funding. And so um, I'm, I'm excited about that, really just helping people go make their dream a reality. Uh, making a dream reality. We're here locally. There's another organization with some similar efforts working to educate the next generation about private equity financing. University Growth Fund recently opened an Atlanta office to recruit, teach, and train college students, specifically those of color, about the ins and out of venture capital. So joining me now to talk more about this is Peter Harris. He's the founding partner of the University Growth Fund and Diane Moray, the president of Consumer and Commercial Banking at Ally Bank. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Rose. Great to be here. Thank you. Before we get into our conversation, I just want to get your thoughts on this, and and I'll start with you, Diane. Has the pandemic at all slowed uh, down maybe the the interest in in funding? You know, it's been sort of a weird sort of space we've all been in, but has the pandemic had any impact on on venture capitalism? Because folks may feel like, well, maybe not now is the time to, to fund a startup. What can you tell us? So from from my perspective, we've seen great momentum. I think early in the pandemic, there may have been more uncertainty, but we continued to see a very healthy pipeline. There is a tremendous amount of of startup activity. And and so, again, I'm sure there are probably some some entrepreneurs who may have taken a a sidestep just to see how things panned out. But we continue to see a lot of activity. Peter, what about you? What's your assessment? Yeah, to be honest, we've never been busier in a lot of ways. I think the pandemic uh, really accelerated technology adoption across the board. And so as a fund that focuses on investing in technology, we've seen both a large number of new ideas and new startups pop up, as well as um, really strong progress and, and traction among those that were already in the market. So, you know, and as part of that, they raise more money and that keeps us busy. When we talk about venture capitalists, and this was some information that we gathered from Equal Ventures, and it it revealed that 58 percent of venture capitalists were white men, 20 percent Asian men, 11 percent white women and 6 percent Asian women. Only 2 percent were black men, 1 percent of black women. And while 1 percent were considered identified as Latino male and 0 percent uh, at Latinas, when you think about those numbers, you know, offer me some reflection on that, Diane. So that is exactly the crux of the problem. And we know that black and brown individuals particularly are significantly underrepresented in this extremely lucrative field. And so Ally and University Growth Fund have had a partnership but in Salt Lake City where the fund was formed. Mm -hmm. And as we saw the impact that the fund had on changing students' lives 
and changing their trajectory, we said we need to we need to open this up in other places that can provide the same opportunities. And that really is behind why we we opened the office in Atlanta. Well, Peter, I'll let you take it from here. What was so attractive and appealing about Atlanta and what makes Atlanta the perfect hub for this? Yeah, there are a lot of great things about Atlanta. So, you know, one, you have a number of just very high quality uh, educational institutions uh, with a very diverse population. Mm -hmm. A lot of, you know, really bright, motivated black and brown students uh, and also really a great tech ecosystem that's really growing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really excited about what's happening there. And then lastly, it becomes a really nice gateway to the rest of the Southeast for us. Um, and so, you know, those those are kind of the main drivers behind it. Um, and, you know, so far it's, it's played out really well. Uh, we launched our first inaugural class of students this spring, mm-hmm. uh, pulling in students from Morehouse and Spelman and Gwinnett College, as well as Georgia Tech and Georgia State. And, um, you know, really excited to continue to grow the, the team there and, and bring in more students from kind of more of those schools in the region and, and provide more opportunity for them. Well, let's take our listeners through how this would work. You just talked about the inaugural class here. Diane, take our listeners through what these students will be going through. Well, it starts with a pitch competition. And the pitch competition happened several months ago, and the students are free to join and they go through a programmatic prep, if you will, of learning about the the phases. And so from the pitch competition, then the students have the opportunity to apply to be accepted into the program. The program is rigorous, and Peter will tell you, uh, these students, uh, they are due diligencing and preparing all of the material to make investment recommendations to an investment committee in some of these startups and companies. And quite frankly, the experience they learn is invaluable. And so they do whatever it takes uh, and and it's real money, right? This is the the thing that Ally loves about UGF. It is a real fund. These are real investments and real companies and the, the training that these students get and the access they have then to incredible job opportunities when they graduate is really significant. So let's go back a little bit. And Peter, I want you to take our listeners through typically how startup companies are financed. Now, one might think, oh, they find someone, they they write them a check. It's a little bit more involved in that. It would be nice. (laughs) Yeah, definitely a little more nuanced. So most companies, you know, as Paul Judge uh, mentioned earlier, kind of raise from friends and family in that initial round uh, where they have this idea and they go and convince uh, those around them that that trust them, that are really investing in them to get kind of the the startup off the ground. And then after that, there are angel investors, you know, people that have a lot of money, mm-hmm. you have seed funds. And as a company raises more of this capital by going out and pitching to investors their idea, and then as that idea starts to get traction and revenue, and then they're pitching like the business model. Uh, and convincing investors to invest, then it you know it goes upstream and eventually to where we participate, where we're investing in companies that are doing kind of one to three million dollars in revenue and are really looking to to grow the business into something much, much bigger. What are those typical questions um, that the students have about just the whole process that you can share, Diane or or Peter? 
Well, I think uh, in turn, oh, go ahead, Peter. Go ahead. I think a lot of the questions the students have is how am I going to learn how to do this? Yeah. How do I learn how to evaluate and, and recommend an investment versus a pass? And the students get incredible exposure. They are talking to CEOs and founders. So I think on the front end of the program, many of them, and you know, my favorite story is a, a music major who got into this program and how, again, her whole world changed. But Peter, build on what I just said in terms of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, the thing that's interesting within venture capital is that it's very much an apprenticeship model hmm. in, in terms of how you train and how you learn how to do venture investing. And just as those networks don't really exist for raising kind of that first round of financing from your friends and family, in a lot of diverse um, groups, they they also don't oftentimes lack access to that apprenticeship as mm -hmm. well. And so a lot of what we do at University Growth Fund is rather than have an internship program off to the side where we have one or two students in it, we make it the core of what we do. And so today we have 40 to 50 students in our program at any given time. We give them as much autonomy as possible. And so they're meeting with entrepreneurs face-to-face. -face so this is student-led. This is a student-led. very much student-led. Yep. And they're asking the hard questions, right? And sometimes, to your point, they don't know exactly what to ask. And so my partner and I, we're there to help, you know, guide and train. But but ultimately, they get to ask the entrepreneur, you know, help us understand how you're going to deal with this competitive threat or, you know, why are your, your expenditures so high in this area, right? And that creates this really interesting dynamic where entrepreneurs, they engage with the students at a deeper level because they know at the end of the day, the student has, has the ability to write a check right into their business. That, and so it just creates this really deep, um, very educational experience. That's a unique model. That's a unique model. Diana Mesh, uh, it makes like a silly question, but uh, why would the Ally Bank be involved in this? Right. So the program uh, started in Utah. We, as part of our Community Reinvestment Act, um, support UGF. And it, again, it's all about economic development, job creation. And the, the move to Atlanta has just been very central under our diversity, equity, and inclusion focus as a company. And, you know, particularly last year, after obviously all of the, the, unrest and, and terrible things that happened in our country, we took a step back and said, we can't solve all of society's problems, but what else can Ally do to make differences in the lives of people? And so this is very central to our, our culture and our mission. And here come the emails. I have an email from a listener who wants to know when's the next class, when, how can they sign up and they want more information about this? Yeah, absolutely. So we recruit three times a year. Uh, we're actually in the middle of recruiting right now. So if any of your listeners are attending a school in, in Atlanta and are interested in participating, they can go to our website. It's the letter U, growthfund.com. And there are a lot of links there that they can apply. There's also a lot of information about the program and how it works. It's a, uh, a part-time internship. It's about mm -hmm. 20 hours a week, but mm -hmm. it's a very flexible 20 hours. And um, 
so yeah, if, if, if your listeners are interested and, or know somebody that might be interested, please have them apply. We, we'd ex- be excited to have them. Well, and Peter and Diane, let's get some clarity too, because I don't want listeners applying and saying, Rose Scott said, y'all are going to fund my company. You're looking, for, <laughs> you're looking for a startup that's already in existence, correct? Or is it just uh, right now, if someone has a concept, I want to be clear. Yeah, no, absolutely. So one, we're recruiting, you know, for students in our program mm-hmm. in real time. In terms of companies that we fund, we are looking for businesses that already exist that have some level of traction. Um, so more than just an idea, right? They, they've sold some product, they've got some revenue. Uh, we do that for a number of reasons. The one being, the probably the biggest being that if a company has some real traction, there's more there for the students to dig into mm-hmm. and learn from, right? Um, you know, we think there are a lot of amazing other funds that are focused on providing seed capital at the earliest stages. And, and we work closely with those funds, we support them, but that's just not the type of investing that we do. But if we can be helpful to any entrepreneur at any stage, uh, we, we do what we can. You both know that we are in this space and in this moment where all initiatives under DE&I you know, I'm still waiting for a, a better terminology because, quite frankly, I think that gets, depending on who you ask, it gets a little, <laughs> believe it at that. But in this space where we're talking about diversity and, and equity and inclusion, having a program like this, and what is your hope that has this leads really to something that we can, maybe in a few years down the road, we can we can look at, we can analyze and say, all right, this was something that worked and it's led to more you know, people of color and business owning businesses, startups, tech, what have you, where do you hope that this will grow into? Uh, Diane, I'll start with you. Yeah, it's such a great question, Rez. I think as we envision the, the future, it's creating pathways for people. And those pathways can take many different forms, but certainly starting with providing access to, you know, to this type of internship to gain these skills to learn other other paths they may take in their career and then again from from an ally perspective and companies all across this country we know that we have more to do to pull in you know and broaden our diverse um, pipelines and elevate elevate you know people within our companies mm-hmm. and so I think it's going to take a lot of paths Peter I'll give you the last word on that yeah, I mean, we're really excited, you know, having seen the impact that our program can have on the lives of students over the last decade plus of, of running this program. Our hope is to bring more black and brown students into the program and then help them on to their career becoming investors and, and really solving that diversity problem from the ground up, if you will, because mm-hmm. we believe that as you have more diversity of experience, of culture, um, of perspective, that's going to lead to better funding outcomes and opportunities across the board for everybody and better outcomes for everybody, regardless of race, gender, um, what have you. And so you know, we're, we're, we're really hopeful and, and excited about, about the future of what this program can do and, and the, the impact it can have, not just on the students, but the impact those students can have on entrepreneurs and other professionals throughout the rest of their careers. Mm. Peter Harris, founding partner of the University Growth Fund. I was also joined by Diane Moray, the president of Consumer and Commercial Banking at Ally Bank and the University Growth Fund, recently opening an Atlanta office here to recruit, teach, and train college students, specifically students of colors, the ins and outs of venture 
Capital. Thank you both for coming on and taking the time. I really appreciate it. We'd love to talk to some of the students along the way. You know, send them, send them on. We'd love to hear how the whole process is working out for them. We'd love to do that. Thank you. Sounds great. Thanks, Rose. H. Johnson should be on every day. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Big or small, school districts throughout the nation are implementing COVID-19 protocols. We know that. That includes mandatory mandatory mask or optional. Here in the Atlanta region, we've been speaking with superintendents about what their measures have been. And now we turn to one of the smaller districts, but they're mighty, as they say. Dr. Maggie Furman is the City Schools of Decatur Superintendent, and she joins the conversation. Thanks for taking the time, and welcome to Closer Look. It's your first first time. Yeah. Hey, Rose. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you and share more about all the great things happening in our school system over here in City Schools of Decatur. Did anybody try to prep you for this segment? <laughs> <laughs> quick sound check but that was pretty much it (laughs) let's go back for a moment because in the uh, welcome back video for the district you said this year's theme is stronger together take that further for our listeners yeah i am someone as a leader who really believes in engaging multiple stakeholders and coming together as a community And I believe that we all have the same end in mind. We all want to do what's best for kids. And instead of being divisive and tearing people down, that we should build each other up and come together as a community to support each other because that's what's best for our kids. Whether it's pooling resources together, getting mentors for students, helping our teachers get the resources that they need from their classrooms through whatever avenues we can get. Um, I think when we work together and we're all rowing in the same direction, we will get to what we want for our students, which is for in city schools of Decatur, equitable outcomes, mm-hmm. high equitable outcomes for our students academically and um, emotionally. As I mentioned, you're a small school district with about, what, 10 schools. Um, but for our listeners not familiar with the city schools of Decatur, what's your current student enrollment overall? It is right. I just looked at it yesterday and we were at 5807. So just under uh, just under 6,000. Yeah. Now, school started back on August 3rd. I'm curious, what was the energy like as students returned? I know you took some time to check out some schools. What was the energy? It was palpable and very high energy and lots of excitement. Um, One of the really special things about City Schools of Decatur is most of our students walk to school. Um, So as I'm driving in, driving past schools, you see kids walking to school, they're excited, they're smiling, they're, you know, the younger kids walk with their parents, and it just puts that energy in the streets and you could just feel the town come alive again here in Decatur and it's just such a happy feeling. And then walking into the schools, the kids are smiling. One of my favorite experiences was at one of our elementary schools as I was walking in, the students were seated seated outside eating their lunch and it was a kindergarten classroom. And a little girl has a bento box and I ask her what she's eating and she's pointing out all the pieces in her box. (laughs) And next thing I know, the whole kindergarten class is lined up behind her. (laughs) They all wanna show me what's in their lunch. It was so cute and just so darling. You can't go wrong with kindergarten in the first week of school. It is just, it's, I've been there. an amazing feeling. Um, Mask, they are required, correct? 
They are. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. You know, over the summer, we were looking at numbers when the numbers were looking lower. It seemed like maybe a possibility that we might not mandate masks for unvaccinated. But when the Delta variant numbers really started to tick up and we saw that that was going to be an issue of safety for all students, it was an easy decision to put masks back in place. It's a very unobtrusive mitigation strategy. It's very effective. And if that's what's going to help keep our students in school, in-person learning is what we're prioritizing, then that's what we're going to do. What did you hear in terms of feedback from parents? Was it a mixed bag or was it mostly leaning one way or the other? We have a very strong community support for masks. Um, there's a handful of parents that were concerned about wearing masks and how that might impact student um, and learning and instruction in the classroom. But overwhelmingly, our community is supportive of keeping our students as safe as possible. And that means wearing masks in school. So that's what we're going to do. And to your knowledge, Superintendent Affirmant, were there are there any confirmed cases within your buildings, within any classrooms that you know of? Yeah, we um, track our data weekly, um, and we are really fortunate in City Schools of Decatur to have a certified nurse in every one of our school buildings. Mm -hmm. So they test the students. We have rapid testing um, that we go, um, if a student is showing symptoms or a staff member, we test them. Um, So we have had some positive students. I think last week we had seven positive individuals in our school. We're finishing up contact tracing this week, and we're looking pretty close to the same number. I don't have all the final numbers, but about the same uh, number for positive cases in our building this week, too. And so for those students who were positive, then obviously they had to remain home for a certain period of time. And what is your communication process like to alert parents and, and the whole district for that matter? Yeah, we have a pretty rigorous process. So we started working on this process last year and have fine-tuned it as we went, have gone through this. It's been a learning experience, but I feel like we've got a good process in place. So once we find out that we have an individual, whether it's a student or staff member that has tested positive and has been in our building, uh, we send out a school-wide communication to the everyone in the building. We let them know that there has been a COVID-positive student in our building, um, and then we add communication to those that were in close contact or just in the classroom to let them know we're still contact tracing. We'll let you know if you have been close contact with the student or a staff member that was positive. And then once we finish that process, we identify the students that were in close contact. We send them another letter. Our nurses reach out to the parents, help them walk them through the quarantine procedures and timelines, answer any questions that they may have. And then we even go an extra mile. We offer testing to any students that have been in close contact after um, after that exposure five days later. So if they want to get tested, they can come back in for that test. Is virtual an option for some parents if they have some concerns? We do have a uh, Decatur Virtual Academy. Right now, we're just about under 100 students within that academy for this year. And uh, we had had a couple parents kind of late in the game want to switch to virtual, and we welcomed them to that setting. Um, And then at every grading period, parents have the option to either join the virtual setting or opt out. Um, But the other thing that we did as a school district to really ensure that when students have to quarantine that are in person or students have to isolate, we have a seamless educational experience for those students. So our teachers are ready to turn that switch, provide virtual learning for the students when they have to stay home for quarantine or isolation. The voice you hear is Dr. Maggie Furman. She's the City Schools of Decatur's superintendent. As we continue our area, our conversations with area superintendents about not only just returning back to school and the energy that's that kids are experiencing, but also about their COVID-19 protocols. As you know, Superintendent Furman, look, you all are in DeKalb County. 
It's a county in the top five overall with confirmed cases, hospitalizations, and deaths going back to last year when all of this started. How often are you receiving or seeking updates regarding the virus and within the whole county? And that that determines whether or not the next steps you all take in all of this. Yeah, we have a really close relationship with the DeKalb Depart- uh, Board of Health. They have been instrumental in vetting our policies and procedures and our mitigation strategies. Um, they have been very helpful as we contact trace. When we were learning the whole contact tracing protocol, they were there answering our calls, helping us walk through that process. Um, I look at our data every day, sometimes twice a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where are we? What are the numbers looking at for positive cases within the county? But I also watch our vaccination rates. Um, and if you didn't know, you can actually drill down to census tract mm-hmm. vaccination um, on the website for Department of Health for Georgia. And the Decatur vaccination rates are actually pretty high. So we have four um, census tracts in Decatur, and two of our census tracts are over um, 50% vaccinated, and two are really close to that. So we feel strongly that even though overall in the state vaccination rates might be a little lower, we have a really high vaccination rate within the city school limits. Earlier, we played a clip from Governor Brian Kemp in another segment, and, and Governor Kemp is, you know, he's pretty staunch on that mandating mask or mandating vaccines through his lens is not an option that doesn't work but for your staff you all are encouraging folks to be vaccinated Yes, we are holding vaccine events in collaboration with DeKalb Board of Health every two weeks. They bring out a van, they vaccinate anyone that walks up who needs a vaccination. Um, we strongly encourage vaccinations. We've had been very lucky in city schools of Decatur to have a really um, well vetted team of health experts and they have shared the vaccinations are the number one best way to prevent COVID. So we are along that lines, encouraging all of our staff and eligible students to get the vaccine. The great thing about fall, as you know, is with Halloween coming up and and all the fall events and the school events. And I remember when I was in elementary school, we always had a fall school play or something like that. Uh, Have you all, are you looking at maybe trimming the capacity for some of these school events or what's your approach to that? So we are going to have all our events. Um, How they happen may be a little bit different. Um, We are going to have our football games, but we are asking people to wear masks, even though they're outside during a football game. Um, We do have plays and other events, and we will follow our COVID protocols as accordingly. Um, If we feel it's too many people in one space, we may offer a hybrid option. So Mm -hmm. some people could come in person, some people could watch online, um, but we are going to um, make sure that we do offer the full educational experience for our student, which does include the extracurricular activities. Let's shift for a moment and talk about you. You've been an educator for more than two decades now. Do you remember that first day of class when you were a teacher? What what that was yeah. like? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'll never forget because I taught at a school up in Norcross, Summer Hour Middle School is where I started my career. And wonderful school at great teammates. I'll never forget the first day of welcoming students to my classroom and setting them up in their rows and just being so excited to to welcome students. And it's just such a great experience there. I, I love teaching. I miss being in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's one of those things that I'm like, oh, maybe I should be a teacher again because those were the good old days. But I, I loved it. Never forget those first few days of teaching and building relationships with kids. Well, and as an educator, and you know, when we talk about equity and disparities, and it seems like that's, I have a lot of conversations on this program about that. When you think about the future of public school, K through 12, 
Um, mm-hmm. Is the nation in, in general, are we making the, the, the strides and progress that we need to? And then, of course, you can throw in that the pandemic will has now amplified all of these inequities, which I'm like, I don't know how y'all can see that before, but whatever. So moving forward, what is your hope that comes out of this now with how we educate, you know, students in this nation and in our public schools? And what I love about the conversation and the narrative that's changed in public education is really focusing on equity. That now more than ever is taking center stage. All the conferences that you get invited to, the topics are equity. People are really leaning into equity to see how to do, how to create an equitable outcome for students. City Schools of Decatur, and I'm really proud to say, has been leading the charge on equity in public education. We started equity departments before any other school system did. Um, We constantly get tapped by neighboring districts, not just in our area, but also around the nation on, hey, how are you doing this equity thing? How are you planting the seeds? How are you getting people involved? What's the work that you're doing? Um, My hope for our equity work is that we see those results, that when we look at our data, we can say without an argument that our students of color are achieving as high um, academically as our white students. And I see the tide starting to turn. I see the, the needle starting to move in that direction. So we are leaning in more than ever with culturally responsive education to help our students um, in all areas be successful and to pay that education debt to our students of color. Well, then now as a superintendent, of course, I know the pandemic is a priority and to keep in line with what you just said, what will be part of your vision for City Schools of Decatur that you want to see improved or enhanced? So to me, it is really focusing in on that equity work. So we look at data on a monthly basis. I have conversations with my principals and we look at that data and we say, okay, how are our students doing? If what's working, great, let's keep that going. We identify model classrooms where we see the results that we want to see, those equitable outcomes for students. And if we don't see those results, we have conversations with the teachers. I approach things with a coaching mindset. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what's working, what's not working, how do we improve, and how do we monitor what we're seeing with our students so that we can apply those expert um, lenses to achieve the equitable outcomes that we want to see for our students. When you look at the models that you've said have been working and you look at what maybe some, I don't know, what other districts are doing either here in Georgia or in the nation, is something that you want to implement that you all currently don't have? Um, I really think that for City Schools of Decatur, one of the areas that I would like to really focus on as we rewrite our five-year strategic plan are some other opportunities to um, implement some more innovative practices for our students. So we know that our, we do a really great job of graduating students. Our graduation rates over 90% mm-hmm. consistently over the last five years. Um, but are we now preparing students for those technology jobs that are on the horizon, those jobs that aren't even created yet? So I want to make sure we're thinking about innovative practices to make sure our students are ready for those innovative jobs that are up on, in the future for our nation. And you and I both know the importance of having you know, you talked about your student population, but your educators in terms of having a diverse group of educators. When you look at overall the the race and ethnicity and the makeup of your educators and your staff, um, how do you see that? How do you assess that? Could it be better? It could it could definitely be better. Um, that is one of our priorities with our school board is to make sure we have a diverse staff um, and not just a diverse staff overall, but diversity in every level of employment in our district. 
Um, we have a racial equity hiring tool that we use every time we hire staff. We review the job description. We make sure we bring multiple perspectives to the table in the interview process so that we are looking at all employees and um, hiring a more equitable, a more um, diverse staff as we go forward. Tell me about your leadership style. How would you describe it? Um, I think kind of, to me, it's the coaching style. So mm-hmm. I like to really talk with people about what are your strengths? What are you doing? Um, that's great. What do you love doing? What do you see yourself as your own goal for improvement? Um, and then help provide the supports for the leaders that need and staff members that need that support. So I'm the cheerleader on the sidelines. I'm cheering people on. I'm the resource finder, getting them what they need so they can be successful and then celebrating with them after they've succeeded and just being that person that pets them on the back. It's just been a little bit over a month, not even a month and a half that you've been superintendent of City Schools of Decatur. What have you learned so far? To listen to those around me and to take a breath. And uh, I think probably the most valuable lesson is you don't have to make a decision in the moment. You can take a second, you can step back, you can listen to the people around you and gather input before making a decision. Speaking of decisions, when it comes to you have some mini pinchers, are they Doberman pinchers or mini pinchers? You know, we do our research <laughs> here. <laughs> yes, full-size Doberman pinchers. Yes, I grew, I grew up with Dobermans um, in Pennsylvania with my family, and I've always loved that breed. And we have adopted two Dobermans. Uh, well, actually, three. One had passed away a while ago, but um, we have two now and a foster. And actually, good news is we're taking the foster to her new adopted family tonight. <laughs> Uh, who listens more, the mini pinchers or the kindergartners? The Doberman pinchers or the, kin- <laughs> the kindergartners? Sadly, the kindergartners. <laughs> I need to work on my dog training skills. <laughs> Dr. Maggie Furman is the City Schools of Decatur Superintendent. Thank you so much for taking the time. Congratulations on, on your new post in leadership over there. It's, we need to come out there and, and well, we'll have masks. We would love but. to have you out here. We would love to have you come out and join us for some walkthroughs in our school buildings. We have amazing students. They are so talented. Uh, we would love to have you guys out. All right, Dr. Maggie Furman, City Schools of Decatur Superintendent. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Welcome. Thank you, Rose. Good to meet you. Same here. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other, as you always do. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online. Y'all know that, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. In fact, you can subscribe to a lot of programs heard right here on WABE. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.